0: Well, that's, uh, that's kind of what God's doing in our life <clears throat> here recently. Uh, Introduce you to Wilson Joseph Hancock, born uh, a month ago yesterday. And uh, we are proud grandparents now, and I guess officially old. Um, <clears throat> we, we feel it. Um, But one of the reasons that we uh, came back uh, in our two-week break from language school was to um, meet our grandson. Um, We have seen him over Skype and have heard him over Skype, but uh, seeing the real animal in the flesh, you know, is um, extra special. So we got to spend this last week in in Abilene, Texas, with uh, Wilson and uh, the new mom and dad. Yeah and you know it's just amazing that something that small can create at the same time such enormous joy and noise I mean it's it's just astounding um but it it has been just great uh to um to to meet Joseph and to um and to see can y'all those of you who were who were around when we were here, when we planted this church in 1986 and brought our um, brand new daughter, Candace, here. Those of you who knew Candace, that's Candace's baby. That's Candace's baby. And, you know, as John Paul was up here this morning making announcements, I mean, I, I, I looked up there and I went, that is John Paul Pat. I remember when you were how time just goes on, isn't it? And and I'll tell you what, um, you know, this is joy, and uh, that is encouragement right there. Encouragement in the flesh. John Paul Paddock. To see how he's grown and his plugging into, you know, helping the youth here at the church. And, uh, you know, there are several, several other folks that I just look, and I, and I see your faces, and, and I just was reminded of this worship team and i'm rambling right now i'm sorry but i i this worship team and i just thought you know the faithfulness of so many of these folks that have that have just continually continued to serve and 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 to to lead this church for 20 plus years um gosh i mean there's so many things that can encourage you um so it's 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 a joy to be back and um it's, it's just a thrill to be with you guys. So um, that's what God's been doing recently uh, in our lives, um, our, our new grandson, and, and he really is cute and adorable and precious and, and loud. Um, and I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of a hint of what God's been doing in our lives recently. As many of you know, we're in a year of preparation for uh, long-term missionary service in uh, Latin America. Uh, right now, we're learning the Spanish language. We're in San Jose, Costa Rica, for one year uh, to try to learn Spanish uh, and, you know, uh, try to get it all done in a year. That's, es difficult, see? It's difficult. Difficile, see? Yo tengo intención a predicar en español todo este día. No. Now, how many of you understood what I just said? All right. Did I, did I say it correctly? All right. Tell me language school doesn't work. <laughs> what I said is not true, but they understood it anyway. Um, anyway, we are uh, learning Spanish, uh, and uh, these are my three teachers. One of those is actually Melanie's teacher as well. Top left is my grammar teacher, Graciela. Bottom, uh, in the middle, is my... Was my phonetics teacher. Uh, her name is Taidi. And that's Ana Silvia on the right. She was my uh, linguaje or language conversation uh, teacher. We have uh, three trimesters this year. We just finished uh, our first trimester, so we've got two to go. Um, this year has been uh, comprised, or this trimester was comprised of two hours of grammar. One hour of phonetics and one hour of language um, where we just get in the room and talk. Listen and talk. Um, and then next trimester, uh, we drop the phonetics. I, I figure they, by this time, after one trimester, they figure better know how to say it correctly and then we just focus on grammar and language. Um, so we, we'll have two hours of grammar and two hours of conversation. Um, <clears throat> and then I have no idea what's coming third trimester, probably just hard stuff. Um, it's been very, very stressful, to be honest with you. Um, it's it's the kind of stress that I uh, haven't experienced uh, in, in quite a while. The intentionality, the, the constancy of trying to cram a, a, a new language in into your brain and the pressure of of just the everydayness of it. is is pretty hard, and and they intensify it every day. I mean, we we started off in in my language class where half the class was in Spanish, half was in English, because I tested out to come in about a medium level, and after about the first week, no more English at all, nothing. I mean, everything's in Spanish, so... You just kind of like hanging. Okay, what's my assignment for tomorrow? Did I make sure? Uh, so, I mean, it's 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 intense, um, but it's intense in a good way, and we can see uh, some sig- significant progress uh, being made. So that's what things look like for for uh, language school, and that's the bulk of our day uh, is language school. But it's not just language; it's also uh, implementation into the culture. Uh, this is a picture of Melanie and one of her teachers and a fellow student, they're um, concocting some uh, Costa Rican drink there for a a party. And then you see Melanie uh, got involved in uh, some local Costa Rican dance stuff. Um, And uh, then that's me dressed up. I was part of the deal, but I got to carry benches. That was about it. So as you can see, I go to language school and study real hard. Melanie makes drinks and dances. Not, that's that's far from the truth. <laughs> it's far from the truth. She plugs that in on top of doing language school. Um, and, you know, people have... I'm, I'm going to show you pictures of our apartment here in just a minute. But people have, you know, asked, what's it like there? It's very, very different than life here in the United States. Very different. Um, life takes longer to live there. Uh, it's, it's not that difficult. Uh, Costa Rica, in, in in relative terms of... Economic prosperity and all of that. Now, it's nowhere like the United States, but in comparison to other Central American, Latin American countries, it's actually um, doing pretty well. So, you know, we're within walking distance uh, of most of the stuff. Did I mention walking? Because we don't have a car. I have walked more in four months than I did in 54 years before I went there. And that is not an exaggeration we walk everywhere. And if it's absolutely too far to get somewhere, we take public transportation, and ride a bus. If we got to get somewhere quick and get back, then we take a cab. But life takes longer to live. So if we have to go to the grocery store, it's not hopping in your car and it's walking. Uh, if we want to go to the mall, walking. Um, and it just takes longer to live. So we go to... Go to language school from seven thirty in the morning till about noon. Then we do homework and live life, pay our bills, buy our groceries. You know, do all the things that, that you have to do to live. Uh, it just takes longer to get all that done, so it, it it's it's fairly stressful. Here is um, this is outside of our house, um, apartment. Um, this is kind of the gate before you before you get in there. Um, so it, it's God provided a great place for us. It's secure. It's clean. Uh, over 13, 14 years of working in Latin America, I have seen the way people live. And I've seen from here to here, mostly here. So when we went, we had no idea what we would be living in. We just kind of sight unseen. Somebody said, I've got an apartment you know, for you. It's close to the school. We'll take it. (laughs) Didn't know anything. When we walked in, we just said, thank you, God. Because, I mean, I've seen this. And God provided, it's not a big place, it's not fancy, but it's clean and it's safe um, so far. Uh, This is a picture inside the apartment. It's probably about 450 square feet. There's our kitchen, kind of top left and kind of looking back from the kitchen out uh, to the uh, living area, I guess you could call it. Uh, And, you know, there's the the table and then there are two bedrooms uh, and a bathroom uh, in the apartment. It's like I said, it's it's not much uh, in terms of size, but it's it's clean and and uh, we feel we feel pretty secure. So we feel like God's really blessed us with that. Uh, That's Costa Rica, which is our new permanent home. We when we left here. We had no idea what God was going to do with us after language school. There were three possibilities on the map for where we would land permanently. There was a possibility we would stay in Costa Rica. There was a possibility we would go to Lima, Peru. And there was a possibility, a strong possibility at the time, that we would uh, move to Mexico City. Um, On the Friday before we left, on Sunday, we had a meeting with our area leader who is over all of Latin America and some, some real clarity came out of that meeting. So I'll let you know kind of what's on the horizon for our, our future long-term. Uh, they want us to live uh, in Costa Rica, and for that, Melly and I went, yes! Uh, because we really like uh, living in Costa Rica. Um, so we were really, really pleased about that. So that's gonna be where we land permanently. Um, we will live there in, in San Jose, which is, um, I think, kind of right here, where's the, there we go, kind of right here in the middle, uh, in the mountains, right about there. Um, two, two things have emerged uh, from that, Nicaragua borders um, Costa Rica, what is the deal? Nicaragua borders Costa Rica up here, and as many of you know, that's where I've been working for the last 13 to 14 years in Nicaragua. Uh, Panama borders Costa Rica down here, and I have uh, just recently started a Bible institute uh, in Panama on the south side. So we will live in Costa Rica, and they want us to continue to develop ministries in Nicaragua and Panama, so that's very strategic for us to be in Costa Rica to be able to move out that way. They also have asked me to do two two things. Uh, they've asked me to be the city leader for uh, Costa for um, for San Jose, so I would uh, I would lead all of the missionaries that are living in um, in San Jose and kind of be their supervisor and, and leader. Uh, this is a new team that's kind of coming together and forming, so um, that that's an exciting uh, prospect and exciting opportunity. They've also asked me to assume leadership of a team that is responsible for developing church-based training ministries in all of Latin America, uh, Central America and South America. Uh, They've asked me to to head that team up and um, that's going to give me uh, just enormous opportunities to shape and mold a lot of uh, pastoral training uh, and church-based training to help those pastors get um, leadership training and other things going within their churches. So, Two phenomenal opportunities um, that God's uh, put in our, put in our laps to be strategically placed and, and make a, a big impact in, in all of Latin America, so we're glad that God's um, kind of said, Costa Rica's where you're going to live, and uh, we're glad that finally some clarity in terms of you know, our, our mission and how God's going to use us in the future. So be praying for us that, that, uh, that I won't booger it up, you know. Um, that, that, that God will use what He's built into, to us in terms of you know our experience and the gifts that He's given us to to lead well, and and to really make an impact uh, in in the in the Latin American world. So we appreciate your prayers. And Melanie and I want to express to this church collectively, to this church co- um, uh, corporately, uh, our appreciation for your support of us, not just financially, but but your prayers and the way that. Um, Uh, We just feel that um, this is a home church for us, and and we just really, really appreciate the fact that that you're standing behind us and supporting us. And uh, we we, we thank many of you individually who are supporting us uh, with your prayers and and, and supporting us financially as well. It's it's deeply appreciated. And we want to let you know that we take that very seriously, and uh, we want to do the best that we can. Uh, to, to make the biggest impact for the kingdom of Christ in the time that we have left on the earth. So, thanks for your support. One of the things that came out of the elders retreat yesterday was um, related to the fact that, that I was going to be speaking today. And by the way, <clears throat> since we've been in language school, uh, I've got to preach one time. Think about it. one time. I've been preaching for 30 years. And in four months, I've got to preach one time. Those of you who know me uh, know that you'd be in trouble anyway, even if it's not, you know. So anyway, the elders got together and they decided what they were going to do is they were going to dock me. My any honorarium that they that they were to give me for today, they were going to dock me every minute I go past. Forty-five minutes. Well, and I I asked Bill, one of the elders. I said, "Well, all right. Does it go the other way? I mean, if, if I come in under, do I get a bonus? I mean, fair's fair, right?" So here, here's what I and he said yes that there would be a bonus involved if I come in under. So. The message that I'm going to um, bring this morning is, here's the good news. The message is, a mess- the, the one time that I preached, I, I brought this message, and I did it in chapel at the language school. Um, and I had a 20-minute, think 20 minutes, me, 20 minutes. I came in under. There was time to spare. The age of miracles has not ceased. I came in under time. Now, the good news is I'm preaching that same message. The bad news is I don't have a 20-minute time limit. I'm working on my bonus, but I'm going to expand a little bit in one area. But um, I just want to know this as I start this whole bonus thing. I don't know. Who's got the clock? Who's? Tim. Tim's got the Bill and Tim both got the clock. All right. Now, is, can the clock start like right now? I mean, you, you you can't you can't dock me for you can't dock me for all of the catching everybody up. That's not the sermon. Come on, get, can I get it? Help me out here, folks. All right, all right. Start one minute for Wilson. Oh, and the rest is free. Let's go. Let's get after. it. All right. All right, we're going to be looking at John chapter 16. So if you'll uh, take your Bibles and open to John chapter 16, that'll be our our focus uh, this morning. All right I'm I got you two here. It's eleven twenty. <laughs> All right. I don't know about you, but one of my uh, favorite philosophers um, and one of the most uh, astute observers of the human condition uh, has got to be Gary Larson. How many of you know, you probably don't know him from his picture, I, how many of you know the name Gary Larson? I'm an incredible philosopher and observer of the human condition. Gary Larson is the author of The Far Side. Does that help you out, Annie? Okay. Uh, Gary Larson, um, great philosophical mind, um, sociologist, I mean, really understands what it means to be human, um, reminds us that there are four very distinct personality types. Okay? So here, you'll, you'll recognize some of them. Here, here they are. Um, there's the glass is half full person. What do we call that person? An optimist, right? We call the glass is half full person, an optimist. Then you've got the glasses half empty. What do we call that person? A pessimist, all right? There are optimists and there are pessimists. Well, then there's another personality type, half full, no wait, half empty, no half, what was the question? So I think we probably call that a confused person. Can't make up their mind, okay? There's one other personality type, And that is, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. Now, I'll I'll let the Holy Spirit guide you into whatever category you need to put yourself. Whether you're a half-full, optimistic kind of personality, or whether you're a half-empty, pessimistic personality, I'll let the Holy Spirit kind of guide you into where you need to place yourself. Now, I, I know where I would place some of you, but I'll, I'll let the Holy Spirit you know, do his own work you know, in, your, in, in your life. But that's really not my purpose for raising these um, four categories, optimistic, pessimistic, which is probably the two most common personality types that we're familiar with not for you to place yourself. This morning, I want to I ask and answer two questions. First, what kind of book is the Bible? What kind of book is the Bible? Is the Bible a half-full kind of book, or is the Bible a half-empty kind of book? Is the Bible an optimistic book or is the Bible a pessimistic book? And the truth is that neither one of these categories really fits the Bible precisely. Because the reality is there are some portions of the Bible that are quite optimistic, but there are some portions of the Bible that are quite pessimistic. The Bible is not a syrupy, sweet accumulation of feel-good daily affirmations where you just go in and you find a verse, and it just picks me up and makes me joyful for the day, and that's all that the Bible is. The Bible is not a cover-to-cover collection of nothing but victory verses. There are hard realities in this book. But the Bible is far from just being a a harsh document full of nothing but judgments and condemnations and regulations and laws. It's not a gloom and doom document. So is it optimistic or is it pessimistic? Maybe the best way to describe the Bible is that it's neither optimistic or pessimistic, it's realistic. Wouldn't you say? It's realistic. It just tells the truth. Whether that truth is something that's positive or whether that truth is something that's negative, it tells the truth. So what kind of book is the Bible? I think the Bible is realistic. Second question. What kind of leader is Jesus? What kind of leader is Jesus? It's been kind of nice, actually, to live in Costa Rica and not be inundated with the daily political news of the United States of America. That's the honest truth. But as we've been back over these last couple of weeks, we've kind of come back into the early stages of the political season as 2012 ramps up. Have you noticed, I've noticed over the years, that in order to get people to follow them, political leaders, make huge, huge positive promises, but they very seldom talk to people honestly about the sacrifices that are necessary in order for those promises to become reality. And if they do talk honestly about the sacrifices that will be necessary, (laughs) you can just pretty much count that person out for being elected. I mean, it, it's always, we can do this, we can do that, and this is going to happen. And my, my favorite political promise comes from Napoleon Dynamite. How many of you seen Napoleon Dynamite? My, my favorite political promise has got to be the promise that Pedro made. Vote for me, and all your wildest dreams will come true. <laughs> That was the entirety of his speech. Vote for me for high school president and all your wildest dreams will come true. Now, that's a promise, folks. Problem is, Pedro can't deliver on that promise. And the sad fact is that Pedro is not a whole lot different than many of our political leaders who expect us to take them seriously. Is Jesus that kind of leader? A clever spin master who hides the truth? A big promiser who can't deliver? John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33, I, I think is probably one of the best places to help us answer these two questions. What kind of book is the Bible, and what kind of leader is, is Jesus? So let's read that passage together, John chapter 16, starting in verse 16, going to the end of the chapter. In a little while, you'll see me no more, but then after a little while, you'll see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me again? Now, what would it have been like to hang out with Jesus? I mean, these guys are having their own private conversation over here, kind of confused about stuff. And Jesus is not part of that, but he knew. Nothing got past him. That would have been intimidating, don't you think? I I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I will tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have and, and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then the disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we see clear that you know all things. You do not need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming, and has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, before we take a look at some of the details in in, in this passage, um, let's set the context of this particular passage. The Gospel of John breaks down into three major sections. You've got the first 12 chapters, which are Jesus' public ministry of offering himself to the world as the Son of God. This was when he presented himself as Messiah to the world. This is when he encountered opposition, primarily from the religious leaders within the Jewish nation. Jesus presented himself to be the Messiah, and he he did that primarily through seven signs in the Gospel of John, seven miracles that he worked in order to demonstrate that he was, in fact, who he said he was, seven discourses, seven major speeches, teachings that Jesus made to... Say who he was. And there are seven declarations. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the true vine. Seven signs, and wonder, seven signs, seven discourses, and seven I am statements within the Gospel of John, all of which were designed to present himself to the nation as the Son of God and the Messiah. That process of public ministry took place over three years We'll come back to the middle section, which is where we are. Then the Gospel of John ends from, from chapter 18 to, verse, uh, uh, to chapter 21, again with Jesus' public ministry to the world for the sake of the world in one week where he was crucified and he was resurrected. We call that the Passion Week. So from chapters 1 to 12, is Jesus' public ministry to the world, 18 to 21, it's Jesus' public ministry for the sake of the world. But then in John chapter 13 to 17, we've got this bridge between the public ministry and the public ministry. It's where Jesus brings his disciples aside privately. He pulls away from the world, and he takes these 12 men up into what we call the upper room, and he spends one night Three years, one night, one week. Now, what is Jesus doing with these disciples in that upper room one night? What's he doing with them? If this was presentation and opposition and that was crucifixion and resurrection, what Jesus was doing in the upper room was preparation. He was preparing his men for his departure. So from chapter 13, and really 16, although 17 is is his prayer in the garden, but 13 to 16, he's got these guys in the upper room, and he is telling them, Guys, (laughs) starting tomorrow, everything's going to be different. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be resurrected, and then I'm going back to my father, and right now you can't come, but that's all right, I'm going to come back and get you. And he is preparing his disciples for his departure. He is preparing them for what life is going to be like for them when he's gone. He's getting them ready to be his disciples in a world without him. He's telling them that they have a future without his personal presence. He's preparing them for their mission. He's telling them what to expect while they're on mission. How relevant is that for us? That's incredibly relevant for me. I'm in a time of preparation for mission. You are on mission for Jesus. This church, are you on mission for Jesus? When he left, he gave us our mission, didn't he? He hasn't come back yet. We're still on mission. What can we expect in this period of time while we wait for him to come back and take us to the Father's house? Well, Jesus told us what to expect as his disciples as we wait while we're on mission. And I'm glad he prepared us. I'm glad he told us the truth. And it's not, it's not all half full. But it's not all half empty. It's just the truth. It's just reality. So this morning, we're going to take a look at what Jesus tells us. We're going to take a look at two triplets of practical realism. We're going to take a look at a hard reality, a solid truth, and an anchoring emotion. Jesus gives us that twice. First hard reality. Jesus says, now is your time of grief. And we see that in verse 22. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief. Now for these 11 guys, I'm assuming that Judas is probably left by now. For these 11 guys, their time of grief is going to start in just a few hours. And their grief is going to be deep. Their master is going to be arrested. Their leader is going to be brutalized and crucified. Their protector and their provider is going to be gone dead and then gone and he's telling them that he's going home and and they can't come with him at least not yet It's, it's Passover time in Jerusalem and they've shared a meal together and Jesus, during dinner time, has been very, very clear about his itinerary and what lies ahead for him. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be brutalized. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to be resurrected. And then he's going to the Father's house. And he's promised to come and take them to the Father's house, but not yet. Right now they have to wait. And he's promised them the Holy Spirit. We see that in chapter 13. We see that in chapter 14. We see that in chapter 16. He's promised, yes, I'm going away, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and in many ways that's going to be better for you, and they're going to they're love having the Holy Spirit as an abiding presence within them, but they're going to miss Jesus, don't you think? They're going to miss having him in the flesh. I mean, he had been their constant companion and their teacher for three years. They're going to miss his constant presence. They're going to miss his astounding wisdom. They're going to miss his amazing power. I mean, just having Jesus around just made any moment of darkness seem full of light. And there was amazing security just knowing that Jesus was there with us. He can handle anything that comes up. And now he's telling us he's leaving. And he's not going to be here with us anymore. And the prospect of him being gone means the world might get dark again. Jesus gone. I mean, for these 11 guys, that that meant fear, that meant anxiety, that meant uncertainty, that meant sorrow, that meant grief. Jesus says, now is your time of grief. But the time of grief extends well beyond these 11 guys in those few hours, doesn't it? Because now is our time of grief as well, isn't it? We look forward to living over the rainbow. But the truth right now is we live under the sun. Graham's, I know, been teaching through Ecclesiastes. It's the phrase that happens constantly in the book of Ecclesiastes. We live under the sun. We don't live over the rainbow. Not yet. And the realities of living under the sun means that in the terms of Ecclesiastes, life is filled with frustration. Life is filled with things that don't satisfy us completely. Life is filled with all kinds of realities that are, that are half-empty realities, right? Now is our time of grief. And we have to admit that even though there are moments of incredible fulfillment, the moments of frustration are frequent aren't they Now is your time of grief That's a hard reality But did you notice that Jesus gives us a solid truth to go with that hard reality The hard reality now is your time of grief the solid truth is I will see you again I will see you again verse 22 So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. Now, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand. This whole conversation about, I'm going away, but I'll see you again, began before verse 22. Remember, the whole passage started with that, right? Verse 16, verse 17 to 19 where the disciples are having this conversation among themselves, what did he mean when he said, in a little while, I'll see you again? What did he mean by that? So what did he mean? What does he mean by, in a little while, I will see you again? Is this a reference to his resurrection, or is this a reference to his return? The reality is, both of them are true. Jesus is going to die, and he's going to be gone for three days. Three lonely days. And if you had been one of those 11 men who had spent three years with Jesus, and and, and you had seen him do the most incredibly amazing, jaw-dropping things, and you think, wow! This guy is from God, as they say in this text here. We now finally get it. This guy is the son of God. And then he's gone? Crucified in shame and gone? How long do you think those three days would feel? All of our hopes had been put right here in this man and in his power. And then he's gone. His life is snuffed out and he's gone. And, 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 and remember, all but one had either denied him or forsaken him. I mean, these guys weren't the standing bastions of faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus in, in the darkest moments. They scattered. And before they saw Jesus, what did they do? And Peter said, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm going back to what I used to do. I mean, you know. <laughs> How long did those three days feel? To, I mean, it must have fe- felt like an eternity. But then Jesus was back, and it was just a little while. Can you imagine the joy they felt when they saw Jesus again after he had been killed? And, and then he showed up in that room, just walked through the wall, and then there he was. And they go, whoa, Jesus. Okay, Wow. That had to be incredible. And those three days just didn't seem so long. It had just been a little while that he was gone. But a little while could refer to the time when Jesus returns to take us to the Father's house. And and don't you long for the times when when we will see him part the clouds and open the doors to heaven and say, come on in. Don't you long for that time? Don't you long for the time when there's going to be a reunion with our loved ones who have gone on before us? Fathers and grandmothers and sons and daughters and sisters and brothers and nephews and and those who have gone on ahead of us. We're going to get to be united with them. Don't you long for the time when we get our new bodies? Don't you long for the time when we don't struggle with sin anymore? And it seems such a long time, doesn't it? A long time to wait for all of those incredible blessings and all of those hopes and all of those expectations. And the time just seems so long. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, Well, that fits. The good, the bad, optimistic, pessimistic. <laughs> Man, I need that ringtone. That is a cool ringtone. But you know, when Jesus comes back, it's just going to seem like a little while. It, it may not feel like that right now. It feels like such a long time, but in a little while... We'll see him again. We'll see him. The hard reality is, now is your time of grief. The solid truth is, but I will see you again. And the anchoring emotion is joy. Verse 22. In that day you will no longer ask me, um, verse 22, so it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And you will what? You will rejoice, and no one takes away your joy. Jesus himself says that when the wait is over, we'll forget the grief, just like a mother forgets her birth pains. That's verse 21. Just like a mother forgets her birth pains when she experiences the joy of the baby. And that's been kind of our experience here recently. It's amazing what mothers forget, isn't it? I mean, the pain of bringing a baby into the world, I haven't experienced it, but I've watched it happen. I watched my wife transform before my very eyes in the midst of that pain. From the nice, sweet woman that all of you know, to the woman in the midst of labor pains. And I was trying to help, rubbing her arm. This wasn't helping. She let me know this wasn't helping. And sweet Melanie, in the midst of labor pains. Okay. But you know what? She got through that, and we had another one. How do you have another one when you've been through that? Because because you forget that pain because of the joy that the baby brings. Candace is going through a thing that she's going to forget. The constancy of feeding and crying and erratic sleep of the baby, which means no sleep for the mom and the dad. And that process goes on For a couple of months and 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 i'm looking at it going what i wouldn't do that again but you know what the joy that that baby brings is going to cause that mother to forget the birth pains and the difficulties in order to experience the joy yet again and jesus says it's like that it's like that you go through your time of grief right now and it seems like such a long time but man When you see me again, and when I see you again, then it's going to be joy. And no one can take away your joy. No one can touch it. What is joy? I mean, we find joy in the Bible a lot. It is found in the strangest places, isn't it? Joy is found in the most odd places of all. Before I left, Graham started his series on Philippians. Now, that's an odd place to find joy. And did, weren't all of your messes, messages joy in doing this, and joy in doing that, and joy in doing this, and joy in doing that, all through Philippians? I mean, sixteen times I think joy is found in the book of Philippians, which is a strange and odd place for a, for for the word joy to be found when Philippians was written from a Roman prison. How can you be joyful when you're in a Roman prison? One of the things I've challenged you to do on your, your uh, follow-up, your Connect card, is just do a study of joy in the Bible. Just, just find the different words that are connected with joy. And you know what? You're going to be surprised because it's not usually found with words like happiness. It's usually found with words like trouble and affliction and sorrow and suffering. Isn't that a strange place to find joy? In this context here, in John chapter 16, joy is associated with what? Grief. In the New Testament, joy is associated with persecution, trials, suffering, and words like that. So it can't have anything to do with circumstances. Joy cannot have anything to do with circumstances. That's happiness. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy does not depend on circumstances. And Jesus says the joy that is ours by being associated with him is a joy that the world can't touch. world can't touch your joy. Isn't that what he said in verse 22? The world cannot take it away. I mean, think about it. How do you kill a Christian's joy when a Christian's joy is based on a resurrected Christ. How do you kill that? See, it doesn't depend on circumstance. It depends on Jesus. And Jesus has already conquered death. You can't kill a Christian's joy. Hard reality Now is your time of grief. (laughs) Solid truth. I will see you again. And the anchoring emotion for us as we wait for seeing him again is joy. Join the expectation, and then finally join the reality. Hard reality, number two. Last verse, verse 33 in the world you will have trouble. In the world you will have trouble. Notice what Jesus says. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. These verses are the last verses Jesus speaks to his disciples before he's arrested, betrayed, and crucified. Now in chapter 17, very next chapter, very next verse, he starts speaking to the Father in the garden. But these are the last things that Jesus says to his disciples. In the world, you will have trouble. He tells them the truth. He gives them a realistic expectation. You're going to have trouble. What kind of trouble? What kind of trouble? Trouble that gets us all. Nobody escapes the trouble, by the way. I read an incredibly interesting article in Christianity Today this past week with all the hype and stuff about the royal wedding. And basically the gist of the article was this. The mother said, when I was a little girl, I was infatuated with Princess Diana's wedding. Remember that royal wedding? It was about as big as the recent one. Maybe bigger, I don't know. But I remember Diana's wedding. And she said, I was just captivated as a little girl with all the romance of of princesses. Real live princesses. Who got to live in castles. And ride around in nice cars. And say nice things to people and people give them flowers and gifts. That's the life of a princess. But you know what? We know Diana's story. It wasn't the life of a princess at all, was it? And she said, Now I have a little daughter who's watching this royal wedding of Kate, and she's all romantic about the new princess. And she says, I want very much to scratch up that image. Because the reality is, Kate, the princess, is not going to escape trouble in the world. We have no idea what trouble her life is going to take. But nobody escapes, do they? Nobody escapes the trouble in the world. In this world, you will have trouble. What kind of trouble? John chapter 15, one chapter before this. Starting in verse 18 of John chapter 15. Just turn back there and look and you can just glance at it. I plan to really develop this. I'm not going to because I'm probably blowing my bonus right now. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. You know what? Notice what Jesus says. How's the world going to treat you? The world's going to love you, right? When you're on mission and you go out into the world, how's the world going to treat you? What's he tell them? They're going to hate you. Why are they going to hate you? They're going to hate you because you're associated with me. The reality is they really hate me, but I'm leaving going back to the Father. They can't get to me, so who are they going to come after? They're going to come after you because you're associated with me and you carry my name. The world's going to hate you. One of the realities of life, while we wait during our time of grief and while we have trouble, while we wait for Jesus to come back and take us to the Father's house, is we're going to have trouble in the world. And you know what? I've seen this increase over the last several years in my life, and it's been kind of alarming. At the persecution and the reality of the way Christians are viewed within our culture. Everybody else gets a pass. Christians get no pass. And I think it's going to get worse. The world's going to hate us. And why are they going to hate us? Let me, let me just give you two words, two words that you can just jot down here. It's not a part of this, but two words for why Christians are going to be hated in the world. The first is exposure. Exposure. Jesus actually talks about that in, in, in chapter 15. I think starting in verse 22 to verse 24 of chapter 15, he talks about it. But let me give you another passage of Scripture that will that, that'll, that'll be very, very clear to you, that will explain it really clearly. Exposure. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come into the light. Why? For fear of being exposed by the light. Do you know what we do as Christians? We expose darkness. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 14 tell us us this very, very clearly. It tells us that we are to live as children of light. And when we live as children of light, what happens? We expose the evil deeds of darkness. So the very reality of us living like we're supposed to live, living lives of righteousness, brings exposure to the world. We bring them into the light and expose their deeds, and they hate us for it. One of the reasons we're hated is just the reality of exposure. Second, reason, second word that you can write down is audacity. We have the audacity to challenge the prevailing ideology and the prevailing virtue in our culture. We have the audacity to do that as Christians. What is the prevailing ideology that we, that we challenge? The ideology of relativism. That is the prevailing ideology of our culture. Anything goes. Whatever's true is true for you, it's true for me, but we have the audacity to say, no, there are some things that are absolutely true, and we believe that this book is absolute truth. We don't make up our truth as we go along. This truth has been revealed to us from God. This is the truth. Walk ye in it. We have the audacity to challenge the prevailing ideology of our culture, and we have the audacity to challenge the prevailing virtue of our culture, which is what? Tolerance. Anything goes. Except we say, no, there are some things that are more important than tolerance, like righteousness and morality. Well, if if the prevailing culture is tolerance... And we talk about righteous and morality and tolerance is a higher priority than righteous and morality. We're stepping all over that. So it's no surprise to us why we're hated. It's just what Jesus told us was going to happen though, isn't it? In his preparation for him leaving to tell us what life's going to be like while he's gone, he says, in the world you're going to have trouble. And one of those troubles is the world's going to hate you. It's here and it 's coming. trouble with the world, trouble with your family and friends. I mean, being on mission with Jesus does not exclude us from having trouble with our family and friends since we 've been in Costa Rica, both of my parents have been hospitalized both of my one of the reasons we, we came back was to spend a week with my parents to try to take care of some long term Care issues with them because neither one of them are doing well mentally or physically. Trouble with your family. You know that too, don't you? Trouble in your body. How many of you ache a little bit? Trouble in your soul. Nagging doubts uncertainty and apprehension, ongoing battles with your flesh. I mean, just trouble. I mean, it's not hard to find that, is it? Now is your time of grief, and in the world you will have trouble. Those are hard realities. But Jesus has a solid truth to accompany that hard reality. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. If the world is the issue, Jesus says, I got that covered. And how is it that Jesus has overcome the world? I mean, think about it. He has overcome the world to be speaking to these men at this moment. Just just, just reflect back. When he was born, Herod tried to kill him as a baby because he was a perceived threat but he overcame Herod and Herod didn't get to him. Satan tried to defeat him in the wilderness in order to discredit him so that he couldn't be our Savior our sinless Savior but he defeated Satan and he came out of the wilderness A sinless savior. Okay, so he overcame Herod when Herod tried to kill him as a baby. He overcame Satan when Satan tried to tried to discredit him by by tempting him in the wilderness. He overcame. But isn't he about to die? I mean, isn't isn't there what's next on the horizon for him? And isn't death a defeat? No. Not according to the Bible. Not according to the Not according to the book of Colossians, death is not a defeat. It's the cross is a victory. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants of the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the street. On the cross! You know, we often think of the resurrection as the time of victory. No, the time of the resurrection was just a vindication to demonstrate he was who he said he was. The time of victory was on the cross. When he defeated Satan, when he defeated sin, when he defeated all the enemies that, that, that came against him. Yeah, he's overcoming the world on the cross when he dies. On the cross he overcame the power of sin. He's the conquering king of forgiveness. And from the tomb, he overcame the power of death. He's the conquering lord of life. He overcomes. He overcomes. In the world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And there's an anchoring emotion for us in this, and that's peace. Peace. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And I have told you these things, so that in me you might have what? Peace. Peace. What is peace? It's more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God's full and rich blessing. It's, it's inner contentment. It's, it's confident and stabilizing security. Picture a massive hurricane that's just sweeping over the ocean and all of its violence and all of its furious power as it whips the waves into chaos and there's turmoil and there's just waves crashing on top as this hurricane swoops over the ocean. But 20 feet below the surface, the little fishes just kind of swim along, totally unaffected by what's happening on the surface. That's peace. That's tranquility. And when you go deep, you find peace. So two questions. What kind of book is the Bible? It's realistic. It tells the truth. And what I want to tell you this morning is because this book is realistic and because it tells the truth, you can trust this What kind of leader is Jesus? He's honest. He is the truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. You can trust him. And I want to encourage you this morning to believe this book and trust this book and to believe Jesus and to trust Jesus. And in our time of grief and trouble, which he promised, let's live in joy and peace, which he promised. Father, I I pray that you would allow the truth of your word to settle in and I pray that the Holy Spirit would overcome the weaknesses of human presentation. And I pray, Father, that you would, that, that you would um, just allow us to sense the reality that we will see you again. And that you've overcome the world. And that in you we are overcomers. And that because we will see you again, we can live in joy now and the expectation of incredible joy when we see you face to face. And though we experience trouble in the world now, we know that you've overcome the world and and that gives us peace. So Father, give us joy and give us peace. And as the world hates us and as the world attacks us, I pray, Father, that we will not be victims of friendly fire and attack one another, but we will band together and we will resist the world And we will fight for your kingdom. We will love one another while the world hates us. And we will advance in the earth until you come home and take us to the Father's house. And we pray this in the name that is above all names.